So I was reading about bank tellers a while ago. And I was curious about how they help them detect counterfeit bills. How do they see these things? How do they pick them out? And of course, they have some machinery and scanners that help them in that kind of stuff. But one might think, at first I thought, well, maybe they just show them counterfeit bills so they know what to look out for. But actually, they don't really do that because the counterfeiters are getting more and more advanced and using new techniques already. So it becomes sort of past dated very quickly. The way that they primarily teach them to find counterfeit fake bills by allowing them to constantly and extensively handle the real thing. And they become deeply familiar with the real thing. So that when a counterfeit does come across their workspace, it immediately doesn't feel right. And they notice, especially in the fine detail in the bills, that there's something off because they're completely familiar with the real thing. They were going to talk about the real thing. Faith boiled down to its barest if you have your Bible or your device, we invite you to turn with us to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18 here in a moment. And right now we're in this series of messages called Passing the Baton. It's all about the right handoff of the baton in the relay race, and we're relating this image to the three generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the interplay between the generations. And to illustrate that today, we've got Ron, we've got Greg, we've got Titus, three generations of one family, Grandpa, his son, Greg's son, Titus. And they're going to read for us Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 18. And later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, God said, take your son. Sacrifice him there. said to his servants, stay here, I and the boy, back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, as the two of them went on together, and said to his father, Abraham, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. 
When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of your enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God ever asked you give up someone, something very near and dear. Something that in and of itself was good and proper and right. It hasn't yet. The time is coming. So for 25 years, Abraham was 75 years of age been waiting for a son. Wife is 65 when he is 75, and they have not been able to have children, which is a big deal now, but possibly even a bigger deal back then because of the culture. And then one day in Genesis chapter 12, as we began this series, this is the eighth message in this series, and we're going to take a break through the Christmas season and re-engage in this series in the new year. One day God says to him, Abraham, you are going to have a son, and through him I will build a great nation, and all the nations of the world, the peoples of the world, will be blessed through you. But then God makes him wait, and through the course of the next 25 years, at times he would reiterate the promise and amplify the promise. And finally, in Genesis chapter 21, God performs a miracle. And I mean a real miracle. I mean something supernatural, because Abraham was 100 and she was 90. Remember, this is the God that created us all, so it's not a big deal to him. But for us, impossible. He and his wife, Sarah, conceive, and they give birth to a son, Isaac, And a period of time goes by, we're not sure exactly how long, but several years, enough years that that Isaac is old enough to perceive and to be able to ask the question, hey dad, we're going to make this sacrifice, we have the fire and we have the wood, but we don't have an animal to sacrifice. And he's old enough that Abraham can load all the wood on his back to climb, on Isaac's back to climb up the mountain. So he's a few years old. 
And God says in this passage, this very unusual thing, he says, take your son, your only son that you love and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. You need to understand this means taking him, tying him down, killing him with a knife and burning his body. Now, don't answer, don't say anything here, but I'm going to ask the three of you to stand up for a second. And I just want you to look at one another. And I want you to just, Ron, can you imagine doing that to Greg? And Greg, can you imagine doing that? Think about what God's asked them. Like, what is God? Why in the world would he ask this of Abraham and Isaac? Well, the text doesn't offer much explanation. It simply says this in verse 1. God did it to test Abraham. Now, there's something fundamental you need to understand about this. If you don't understand this or you forget this, This passage is just going to simply upset you and send you off on an unhealthy tangent. Understand this very clearly. There's a complete difference between a test that God gives and a test or a temptation that Satan brings across our path. When God gives a test, he never tempts anyone with evil or to do evil. The Bible is an internally consistent document. This is why it is the unique book in all the world. There's no other book even close to being like the the scripture. There's 66 books written over a long period of time by all kinds of different people with different giftings, and yet the message never contradicts itself. And so this is one of the hermeneutic principles to properly translate it. You have to... Look at the entire thing and see how it plays together. So in James chapter 1, it says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Very important to keep this in mind as you're looking at this passage. When God gave Abraham and Isaac this test, or gives you a test, He's on your side. He is a good God. And he intends for you to succeed. He's not going to ask you to succeed on your own. If you try to succeed on your own, you'll probably fail. He will help you succeed. His desire is to prove the quality of his workmanship in you. He wants to look and say, I want to punch up faith in this person's life, the purification of their faith. I saw them when they gave their life to Christ, and now I've been on journey with them, and I want to mold them and shape them and remake them to be more and more like Jesus. Now, Satan is diametrically opposed to that, 180 degrees different. He's the exact opposite. When he tempts or tests someone, 
Think, for example, of the story of Job. If you're familiar with the story, it's a book in the Older Testament. There's this guy who's incredibly faithful to God, and Satan says to God, oh, the only reason he's faithful to you is because he's got it going on in all these different areas of life. If I took out these things from him, he'll crash and burn. And so Satan comes at Job, and his entire goal is to make him as miserable as Satan is. He wants Job to fail. He wants Job to curse God. He wants Job to die. But when God tests, he has a wholesome, good purpose in mind. Crucial to keep that in mind when you're reading this passage. Now, having said that, If God asks you to face what I would call a radical test, like we see pictured here in Genesis chapter 2, absolutely we obey. Some three key words in this passage are, here I am. In other words, I'm good to go, God. Here I am. Make sure that it's God who's directing this step of faith. Make sure that you're obeying God's word. When you are given this summons from God. You know, I often come across people who will say things, you know, like, well, God said this to me, or God said that to me. But all they've done, some of these cases, is they've taken a snippet of God's word and sort of vaguely applied it to their situation because they want something that's really not in keeping the whole counsel of God. What's absolutely crucial that you pray, listen carefully to the Spirit's leading. Look carefully into God's word. There will never be a contradiction of those three things. They work together. That's how God works. So when you open God's word, you read it very carefully the context of whatever verse or verses you're looking at. You never just take a verse out of and isolate it and say, well, I'm going to build my life around this. You have to consider the context. You have to consider the genre. There's different types of genre in the scripture. You consider the audience to whom it was written. You consider the historical setting in which it was written. And know that all scripture works together. It cannot be taken. You know, there's only two times in all of Scripture that God makes this request. Just read the first one, the three guys, the three amigos, just read that passage for us. Once with Abraham and Isaac, and even though he asks Abraham and Isaac to do this, even though they're fully willing, he doesn't make them carry through. And it's interesting to me, if you think about Isaac, we often put the focus on Abraham, but think about Isaac as well. Isaac doesn't fight this. He shows incredible courage. He doesn't try to run away from his dad. He doesn't say, Dad, how could you do this to me? Instead, with incredible courage, he's in. And so I just want to say, if you're a young person here today, God has something significant for you. Something that has eternity stamped on it. And don't listen to the naysayers. 
Be a person of integrity. Be a person of incredible courage. And when God taps you on the shoulder, step forward in faith. And God will do something significant through you. So the first time he asks people to do this is this story in Genesis chapter 22. He asks them to do it. They don't actually have to carry through, even though they're fully willing to carry through. The second time he asks it is of himself, with his own son in the New Testament. That in that story, God the Father, God the Son did carry Jesus went to the cross, conquering sin and death and Satan. What is faith? You know, it says in Scripture that without faith, it says this in Hebrews 11, it's literally impossible to please God without faith. So there's all kinds of definitions that people give. Let me just boil it down to this so that we're working on the same page Faith is to take God and his word and entrust yourself to it totally. Here I I'm in, I'm good to go, Uh, here I am. I take you and your word seriously and I entrust myself to it fully. I think we're often tempted to trust God in the way we perceive going to keep his word. The way I interpret it. So think with me, because I have a feeling the temptation in this setting in 22 is to trust in Isaac rather than to trust in God. And what I mean by that is Isaac is seen as the fulfillment of this promises, promise from back in Genesis chapter 12. And he was, but... God can still take Isaac away and yet still keep his promise. Ben Patterson writes this, we must never trust in the Isaacs of our life, but only in the God who gives the Isaacs. And so to me, one of the pertinent questions from this passage for me is, who or what is the Isaac in my life? I'm putting trust in rather than the God who gives the Isaac. I think the temptation for Abraham would have been to think Isaac is the only way that God can fulfill the promise to build this great nation. And God was saying to Abraham, he's saying to us, all that is required is to take Jesus completely at his word. And then God will take care of all the details. But that's the hard part, isn't it? That's really the hard part. I don't, you know, it actually really isn't that complicated. I think we like to try and make it really complicated. But when you can kind of sort of step back from your personal involvement in a given situation and you can just sort of look at this objectively, I think it's actually fairly simple, not complicated, really hard, but not complicated. They just say, I am committed to taking Jesus. And I am committed to not putting myself in the center of the drama where I have to figure it all out. Here I am. 
How hard was that for Abraham? I think it was incredibly hard. Just think about it with me for a few minutes. You know, it's a three-day journey, and it's reminiscent of chapter 12, where God says, yeah, I want you to leave everything you've been familiar with. I want you to do something basically nobody did back then, and I want you to go to a place I'll show you. I'll tell you no GPS, no map. You just start walking. I'll show you where to go. And in a sense, God does this here. He says, I want you to go on this journey. I'll show you where to go. And for three days... They're walking towards this mountain. Three days to think about what's coming. He had either seen or been involved in sacrificing animals before. He knew what it would be like. Up close and personal. Three days to think about the 25 years he and Sarah had waited. And the 75 years before that. Three days to wonder about the will of God. Three days to question and wonder about the fairness of God. Three days to wonder and think about, is the word of God really trustworthy? And I don't know what kinds of questions Abraham asked. Maybe he asked those questions and more. Maybe he didn't ask any of those questions. We really don't know because the text doesn't say. You have to be careful when we speculate. But what I do know is the faith that this guy demonstrates is next level. It's incredible faith. God tells him to do it. The thing that always blows me about, this is going to sound kind of funny, but verse 3, the thing that really blows me away is the first four words there. It says, early the next morning. Early the next morning. He gets up and saddles his donkey. What that says to me is he didn't hesitate. Here am I, I'm in, early the next morning. If it was me, I think I would have been tempted to sleep in. I think I would have been tempted to delay as much as possible. I think I would have been tempted to say, why don't we do brunch together and then we'll start thinking about getting on the journey. No, he, it says early the next morning, He gets up and gets at it. Incredible faith. Verse 5, it says, they get to the place where God showed them to go. They get to the mountain. He had a couple of servants along with them to do some of the stuff. He says to the boys, he says, you stay here with the donkeys. The boy and I are going to go over there. And then he says this powerful statement as well. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Now, different people, again, have speculated on what's going on here. And that's all it is, is speculation. Some people have speculated that maybe he thought God would not require him to go through with this. There's certainly no indication of that in the text. Every indication in the text was that he was good to go, he was fully committed, and he was in the act. Some people think of it, and I think there's probably some real credibility to this, as a type of foreshadowing of God the Father, what I've described earlier, that Jesus would come and give his life on the cross like this as an innocent lamb, like we sang about earlier, for you and for your sin. Don't ever forget what he did And don't ever forget what God the Father did for you, sending Jesus to the 
cross. You're a parent, if you're an aunt or an uncle here, think about doing that to your innocent little one. That's what God did for you. So maybe someone says, maybe, uh, maybe Abraham was thinking, well, I'll kill him, I'll sacrifice him, and then God will restore him or revive him or whatever the case may be. Maybe he was thinking that. We don't really know, as the text doesn't tell us. Apart from the fact that he says, and we will come back. Do know, as he heard God, and he did what God said. And then in verse 7, Isaac speaks up and says, we have the fire, Dad, we have the wood, but we have no lamb to sacrifice. And Abraham simply says, God himself will provide. In other words, he doesn't know what the answer is here, but he's trusting the one who provides the answers. This is next level kind of faith. And in verses 10 and 11, he doesn't half-heartedly take out the knife and sort of tentatively poke at him. He takes the knife, and I, from what I can see in the text, he ties the kid up, and he is ready or in the midst of delivering the killing blow. So much so that the text would seem to suggest that the angel dramatically stops what's happening. It's like, Abraham, stop! Abraham! Dramatic. Put on the brakes. Almost like he's in mid-thrust. Kill him. Then they look over, and in the thicket, there's a ram that's caught. I also want to point out that Isaac showed great faith as well. I mentioned this earlier. He doesn't struggle When his dad starts tying him up, he doesn't say, Dad, what are you doing? Dad, please don't do this to me. There's no record of him saying any or doing any of those things. I would argue, you know, sometimes I hear people make disparaging comments about the younger people. I don't like that. Because I think that a lot of the young people, yeah, there's always some exceptions, just like there's a ton of exceptions to people my age. I think there's a boatload of stuff we can learn from the younger people. Things that they teach us about what it means to trust God. Significant, profound ways, straightforward ways. Things that they can teach us, and and maybe there's, and there is, a few things along the path we can teach to them. I get the sense that Abraham instilled some of this son in in Isaac's life based on the way Isaac responded. So here's this healthy interplay between the generations. The question we've been asking all through this series, I continue to ask is, What are you passing on? You're passing something on. What are you passing on? Are you fumbling the exchange or is it a clean exchange? We referenced earlier in this series the reoccurring pattern we see all through Scripture of what I would call the three Ps. There's the promise of God, there's problems, 
there's provision. And it's not a nice, neat, linear line. It all mixes together. And we certainly see this at play over and over again in Scripture and in this intergenerational story. So God makes this promise in chapter 12. Then problems start to arise, and there's provision. And at points, he reiterates several times, as he does again in this chapter 22. He reiterates the promise. Some problems come, provisions deal with that problems. Then another problem comes up, more provision, back to the promise. But we see this pattern of problem, promise, Sorry, promise, problem, and provision. And that's why it says in verse 14, take note of this. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. He, the God who tests, is the God who provides. Forget those two fundamental things, you will not understand this passage. So how do I cultivate a growing, strong faith, this next level kind of faith? Let me suggest several things. Just like a, I think first of all, just like a bank teller, I need to be really familiar with the real thing. So that when something comes up that's not real, that's counterfeit, we quickly can recognize and see and feel the difference. In other words, a strong, growing faith requires and invites an ongoing, progressive relationship with God. Requires a deep dive into God's word. And when we increasingly know him, The path to this growing strong faith, I'm not going to say it's easier. I don't think it's easier. I think it just becomes more natural. Hey, I've been down this road before, road like this. And so it just becomes more natural. And so when the time's coming up in our life, when there's, you know, sort of no outside confirmation other than we've been praying fervently, we've been listening to the Spirit's direction carefully, and we see this lining up with and consistent with God's word, and God's pointing us in a direction through those three avenues, but there's no external sort of markers to say, go ahead. We more readily move into this because this ongoing relationship has been cultivated. Secondly, And I think this is really important. I don't think we probably do it nearly enough. We remember, we replay, and we retell the faithfulness of God. It's something they were known for, the oral tradition, where every night at the end of the day, they'd sit around and they'd tell the stories over and over and over again, how it was passed down. We do some of that, but maybe we need to write in a journal. Maybe we need to tell the stories repetitively. Not because we've forgotten the information, but we need to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. And so every time Abraham saw his wife five months pregnant, seven months pregnant, nine months pregnant, he sees this kid being born. He sees this kid starting to grow up. Every time he sees these things, every time he hugs that kid, every time he talks to that kid, he's reminded Our God provides. Our God is a God of his word. 
our God can be trusted. I waited 75 years and then I waited 25 years and the God I serve keeps his word. Do you have any kind of a written record or way of remembering the ways God has provided? Very helpful exercise. So let me tell you, I've told you this years ago, let me tell you again. So I'm 18 years old and uh, I volunteer to teach grade one Sunday school. And so I went to a big church and uh, I can't remember how many kids, but about 15 kids in my little grade one class in this little room, okay? <laughs> Me and them, I got no idea what I'm doing. This was back in the day where they would just hand you the material and say, see you in 52 weeks, literally. Okay. Do it quite differently now. But I would pray with these kids. I'd try and tell the stories of God from scripture to them. And we, when we prayed, here, here's, I don't know where I came up with this idea, so I'm sure someone gave it to me. I would take a strip of colored paper, cut it like this long, and I'd say to Junior or Sally or Susie or whatever, um, what do we want to pray to God for? Then we would write down the prayer. And then I'd say, now I want you to go home to mom and dad. I'd send a note home with them and ask mom and dad to pray with Susie about this. Then next week, I'd say, did God answer your prayer? And Susie would say, well, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, okay, cool. So then we'd write it down on the other half of this little strip of paper. We would glue it together. And then around this little room, we would tape what looked like a link in a chain. And then I would interlace all of those all around the room. And then every week, I would say to these kids, look at the chain. Our God's a God that answers prayer. Remember when he answered your prayer? And we would talk about that for a couple minutes every week. Write down and have a methodology to reread, retell, to celebrate the God who is faithful, the God who provides. Another way, just to remember, when I blow it, we talked about this last week, when I blow it, just remember, and Abraham blew it big time at points, but when, but when I acknowledge what I did, when I don't make excuses, when I don't blame anybody else, when I man up and say, hey, I did this, when I repent of my sin, or I need to, and where I ask God to forgive me, and he does, and he cleanses me, and puts me on a new path, and restores me, and gives me another chance, invite him to help you learn, help me learn from my mistakes. It's another way to grow. Generally, a faith like Abraham comes only through years of experience. I'm not saying it's impossible if you're a new Christian, but there is a cumulative value in living for Christ year after year. Finally, I share this one, and again, this is one I shared years ago. This is a little note I have on my computer. I have a second screen, and I have a little note on it, and it's, it's six letters. It's this, B-Y-S-S-I-W. B-Y-S-S-I-W. And I have it there so I see it all the time. What it is is it's a statement from Scripture. It refers to Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, Peter, the professional fisherman, has been fishing all night and they've caught nothing. They dock their boats, they're cleaning their nets. Jesus approaches them and says, 
hey, can I use one of your boats? Goes out on the water, because he knows water amplifies sound. They didn't have a PA back then, but they knew how to project sound. So he borrows their boat, comes back in, says, how was the fish last night? Peter says, we didn't catch anything. To say thanks, Jesus says, go out fishing one more time and get a catch. Now, Peter, the professional fisherman, looks at Jesus, who was a carpenter by trade, who probably knew next to nothing about fishing, says, hey, hey, Jesus, I'm a professional fisherman. We fished all night and got nothing. But then he says six words to Jesus. Y-S-S-I-W. Because you say so, I will. As you say so, I will. Now, sometimes God will ask us to do something that we can't really figure it out. Quite frankly, humanly speaking, it may not make a boatload of sense. God is saying, if you want to develop next level of faith, you need to be like Abraham who said, here I am. Here I am. He says that a couple times in the text. Here I am. He says, you want to be like Peter who said, Because you say so, I will. I move forward in total obedience. Grow a strong, progressing faith. I'd like everybody to bow their head and close their eyes. And I'm just going to give you a minute to pray silently, to reflect on what God is saying to you in this passage. And I'm going to just prompt you with some questions. He might talk to you about something else. But I'm going to give you a minute to pray. And I'll say amen when we're done. And these are the kinds of questions the Spirit might bring your way. Are there any Isaacs in your life? What do I need to do to cultivate and grow faith? Anything he's asked me to the stories I need to replay and retell in my life. Celebrate what God has done. Take a moment and pray. you to give up something, someone. Test comes. Remember, God's on your side. Help you become more like Jesus. Faith means taking God at his word. and conclude our service now in prayer. Just remind you, up here at the front, one of our leaders, Daryl, is here. Daryl's been part of this church for like 30 years. Daryl was a youth leader with my kids and with some of the people that are in this church.
honored to pray with you. Father, as we go, how grateful we are that you're the kind of God that you are. That we don't totally understand. I think if we totally understood you, you wouldn't really be God. So Lord, I pray in my life, but in each one's life here, that there will be this cultivating, this progression to this next level. We're just like, here I am. I'm in. I don't even know totally what that's going to mean, but I'm in. Always been the God that provides. I believe you'll provide. Go now with great hope, with great anticipation, with grateful hearts for what you have and will do.